0: You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. If you have a Bible, please open it up to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We're toward the end of 1 John. Just a few more sermons will be finished up. And our next big series will be uh, looking at the life of David out of 1 Samuel. And so really, really excited about that. I will be doing a Q&A today. Uh, if there's a QR code there if you want to scan that with your phone and save that to your phone for future Q&As. I uh, would love to tackle any questions. I, I, my hunch is today we're not going to have time, but I do want to hear your questions, and we'll address those in a Friday Family Time video or in a podcast. And given the nature of what we're going to be looking at today, I wouldn't be surprised if we have a, a long list. So I say bring it on. It's great. Love to engage all questions. We want to be a, a community where that's really healthy and safe to ask questions. And so please don't be shy. So here's the question I have for you this morning, okay? How many of you remember the day that you decided to come into existence as a human being? How many here remember the day that you decided to enter the world as a breathing human life? How many of you remember the efforts that you put in to make your existence happen? They're kind of silly questions, right? And the above answer, the answer to the above is none of us remember any of that. I did nothing. I remember nothing. I controlled nothing when it comes to my emerging from my mother's womb, breathing air on my own, and developing into the adult that I am today. I had nothing to do with that. I didn't start it. I didn't initiate it. It simply happens. And and I bring this up because it's a really helpful way to frame what we're going to be looking at this morning from 1 John 5. This reality that I had nothing to do with my birth physically or biologically, that it was the will of another that caused me to exist, that is an analogy that runs through many, many verses of the Bible when it comes to how anyone becomes a Christian, okay? So just by way of introduction, uh, I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to only teach on one verse and actually one specific phrase from our text this morning. And and what we find in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5 it actually covers a lot of ground of what we've already covered in First John. John repeats himself a lot in First John for the sake of emphasis, and that's a good thing. For example, the whole theme of if you say you love God, but you have hatred in your heart toward others, there's a massive disconnect there, and there might be something wrong with your Christianity. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. Like that's a big theme in the book of First John. And it's also in our text for today. We've had a lot of sermons on that. But this week, I want, I want to take a, a chance to talk about something we haven't had a lot of sermons on. Um, and it's a really important phrase, and it's, it's found in verse 1. And I, what I want to do is I want to answer this question. What does it mean to be, quote, born of God? What does it mean to be born of God, okay? And this leads to the theological idea of election or predestination, okay? What does it mean to be born of God? And this is something that John, this phrase, born of God, is something that John has talked about a lot. So let me just flash a few verses up here on the screen. 1 John 3, 9 says this, no one born of God makes, there it is, the phrase, born of God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. There's a lot we can say about that verse. You can go back and listen to the sermon on that verse, okay? Verse, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been, there it is, born of God and knows God. And then look at what it says in our text for today. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, here it is, has been born of God. Has been born of God. What does it mean to be born of God? Well, let's look at verse 1, okay? And look at what it says first. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ? Stop right there. So, according to this text, well, well, what it's gonna say is has been born of God. But let's let's look at the logic that John is laying out for us, okay? According to this text, if you believe right now where you sit, this is your experience, this is your human experience, that I believe in Jesus. Okay? I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I put my trust in him. I treasure him above all things because he's worthy of it. I believe that Jesus is who he said he was in the pages of Scripture. So this is what John is saying. If that's true of you, if if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, here's the million-dollar question. How did that happen? biblically speaking theologically speaking how did that happen how did that come about how did you come to the point where you consciously were aware that you believe this how did you become willing to believe what separates you from those that don't believe is it is it intelligence is it i'm just able to understand the bible better I'm a better reader. I'm a better philosopher on the nature of reality. Is that what separates believers and non-believers? Did I figure it out all on my own as an expression of my autonomous free will? Like it says in verse 1, Look at it in your Bible. If you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus is the Christ, how did that come about? Well, to answer that question, it's good to take our cues from other parts of the Bible that support what he says here in verse 1, where he says, you have been born of God. Especially other things that John himself wrote outside of the letter of 1 John, namely his gospel. His gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, same person, and he likes to use this phrase born of God in his gospel, the fourth book in the New Testament, where he tells us very plainly what it means to be born of God. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. It's uh, the first chapter of the gospel of John, starting in verse 9. Again, same author, different book. Uses the same language. says this, the true light, he's talking about Jesus here in his introduction to his whole gospel. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, here it is, but to all who did receive him, confess that Jesus is the Christ who believed in his name, just like it says in verse five, verse one of chapter five, what happened? He gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but how, but of God. So so ultimately the answer, why do you believe in Jesus? John's answer is, verse 13, you were born of God. You didn't make yourself born any more than you were made yourself born the first time physically, biologically. Like none of us willed ourselves into existence biologically. We exist not because of anything we initiated, We exist because our parents initiated I had nothing to do with it. And John is saying the same thing here in his gospel, but not biologically, spiritually. See, look at verse 13. He's saying it's not about what you're, quote, willing to do. Your will, your effort, your initiation, not the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, like your parents. It has nothing to do with that. It's all of God. It's all of God. Said more simply, if you're Christian today, it's because God caused you to see. He opened your eyes to see that Jesus is who he said he is and that he's desirable. He's the primary cause of your faith. The book of Hebrews says it like this, the author and perfecter of your faith. You didn't author your own faith. It's a gift. God is the author of your faith. Born not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. Born of God, John 1, 13. Now, two chapters later, same thing. Jesus is sitting down with this guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a Bible teacher, and he's recognizing some really amazing things in Jesus. And he wants to sit down with him and, and, and kind of pick his brain. Nicodemus, high authority, Pharisee, Jesus, there's something about you. I'm not sure what it is. So let's, let's, ta- let's chat, Jesus. And he just tells Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Another way to say it would be, you have to be born of God. And look at what Jesus says to Nicodemus in uh, chapter 3. He says, Don't, do not marvel, I said to you, you must be born again, or you must be born of God. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit, born of God. Now, there's a lot we could say about this text preached on it a few months ago. You go back and listen to it. But the point in this is you can't control the wind. Jesus is saying, and where the wind blows and what it does you can't control the wind and what the wind does any more than we were able to control the fact that we were born biologically from our parents and saying it's the will of God. That's ultimately decisive. That's what he says here to Nicodemus. So the point here is to be born of God The reason why any of us are Christians, the reason why any of us, according to verse one of chapter five, believes that Jesus is the Christ is a miracle of mercy. It's a miracle of mercy. God gave birth to you, spiritually speaking, not because of anything you ever did or said, but simply because he chose you before you chose him. See, if you trust and treasure Jesus today, the Bible explains how that happened. From eternity past, God decided that you would be his child, that you would be, to use John's language, born of him. Look at what what the book of Ephesians says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here it is. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Just like your parents, you didn't have anything to do with it. They decided. Same thing here. Before the foundation of the world. what? Why? So that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, because he loved you, set his sovereign love on you. In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? So that we would praise him to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Even when you heard the gospel for the first time and believed, whether it was a moment or a process, the Bible says, even if you were not aware of it, God did a miracle to open your ears. And then your conscious experience happened and you said, yes, I need that. I want that. I desire that. I treasure that. Did you have a part to play? Yeah. You repented and believed. But the question is, theologically speaking, why did that repentance and belief happen? Where does the desire for someone to even repent and believe come from? And the Bible teaches that the only reason you were capable of doing that, because God first did a work in your heart to draw you to himself, to overcome your hardness of heart. Look at what Jesus said to the Pharisees in in John chapter six. Again, same, same author, different book. He says to this, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So if you have come to Jesus, if you have come to Jesus, it's because he's, he, he drew you. He drew you. He took out your heart of stone to quote the prophet Ezekiel. He took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. This is what John means by being, quote, born of God. Again, it's the theological concept of election or predestination, and the Bible teaches it very clearly in this text. So let's talk about this for a second, because I know that for a lot of us, this is tricky. Why? Because we have no experiential data to support it, right? Right? I don't have a a memory or a feeling of God regenerating. That's another fancy way of saying being born again, being awakened spiritually. I don't have a memory of that. The only thing I have a memory of is hearing the gospel and going, I think I need that. I I need Jesus. I don't have a, a memory of Him making me a new creation. But here's the thing, and this, is, this concept is so important for so many things beyond just the issue of election or predestination. It's this. Just because I don't feel it doesn't mean it's not biblical, right? Again, the Bible defines my experience. My experience doesn't define the Bible. Said differently, I use the Bible to describe reality to me I don't try and figure out reality on my own and then impose that on the Bible. Make sense? So just because I don't have have a feeling experientially of God changing my heart and giving me eyes to see and and ears to hear doesn't mean that that it didn't happen, doesn't mean that I shouldn't look to the pages of Scripture and have that help me understand what really happened. Makes sense. All right, so what I'm talking about here, what the Bible teaches, uh, comes with a lot of objections. Comes with a lot of objections, and let's just let's just talk about some of those right off the bat. I know some of you are probably thinking this or have thought this when it comes to what the Bible teaches here. So, objection number one, it's really common, is: Does this make us? If this is true, does that mean that we're robots? Does that mean that we're puppets on a string? Like if we're just programmed robots, like God programmed some for salvation and others not, is it then fair for God to hold us accountable? Like we don't hold robots accountable. We don't hold computers accountable. They just do their programming. Okay, good objection. Hang with me because we have to swim in the deeper end of the theological pool with this one. So, you know, like we all are super distracted because we stare at our phones all day. But you're going to lose if you don't pay attention here, okay? We're not robots. Said really simply, the reason why? Because God says that we're not. That's the most simple answer. Whether that makes sense or not, the Bible clearly says that we're not created as robots. What are we created as? We're created in his image. Okay? The Bible does clearly say that our choices are real and have very real consequences. What we do, uh, we do what we want to do when it comes to accepting or rejecting God. Again, made in the image of God, we make very real choices. The Bible always places responsibility for our sin on us. We can never turn to God and blame him and say, you made me do it. Or even the devil, for that matter. The devil made me do it. For example, the Pharisees did exactly what they wanted in rejecting Jesus. The Bible clearly says That they're responsible for those choices and they bear the consequences of those choices. Yet at the same time, God stands behind those choices. Let me give you another example of this Pharaoh in the Old Testament. You can read about him in the book of Exodus, it's very clear. God does not treat him as a robot. He did exactly what he wanted to do, and God held him accountable for it. He received the judgment of God, the just judgment of God. But the Bible also says that God was having Pharaoh do what he wanted him to do. The Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God ordained Pharaoh's choices and raised him up for the purpose of saving his people he had a part to play that was ordained by God and Pharaoh at the same time is held responsible for his choices. Okay? Now, if you're thinking about this philosophically, you might say, that's not fair. That's not fair. How does that work? Well, that objection came up and Paul wrote about it 2,000 years ago in the book of Romans. You read about this in Romans chapter nine. And uh, spoiler alert, For a lot of us that want a nice and neat philosophical answer, Paul doesn't give it, but it's that exact same objection. You say that this is fair, that God raised up Pharaoh for the purpose of glorifying himself in the judgment of Pharaoh? And Paul gives the answer. Paraphrase, God is God and you're not. His ways are higher than your ways. Can the clay say to the potter, how come you made me this way? The potter has freedom. It's not a warm and fuzzy explanation that we want, but Paul ultimately calls believers then and and now to submission. Submission. And, and, and I know for a lot of us, the word submission is attached to fear. But isn't there so much of the Bible that shows us just like we talked last week, right? Did you listen to the sermon last week? When There's no fear when we know who God is based on what he's revealed and that he does love us. But does he not also have the freedom to be God and not have to explain Everything that he does. I mean, welcome to the lack of explanation party. If you're a Christian, okay. Here's the deal: the Bible simply asserts and doesn't explain that Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. That's Orthodox Christianity, Protestants, Catholics, everybody agrees on that one. Bible doesn't explain how that works. Just that it's that it is Jesus, fully God, fully man. The Bible doesn't explain the Trinity. One God, three persons. All fully God. One God. It asserts it, doesn't explain it. So there's certain things with being a Christian where you, you believe what God has given. Just like how is it that God can be completely sovereign over all that comes to pass and yet at the same time hold people accountable hold them responsible. There's a mystery there. The Bible asserts it, doesn't explain it. Okay? My hunch is that the mystery of the mind of God is, is too complex. It's kind of like if you have a three-year-old and you try to explain to them brain surgery. Like, it's just not gonna compute. They're just gonna look at you like, can't we just have snack time? You know what I mean? Like, what? or like the internet or like, it's just like, it's a, it's a category failure. Like the brain of the three-year-old isn't ready to like even conceptualize what that adult is talking about. And I think it's similar here. Isaiah 55 says that his ways are so much higher than our ways. At the, at the end of Romans 11, he, he gets done explaining all this Deep, deep, the deepest end of the theological pool, and he just bursts out in worship. And he says, "God, ultimately, paraphrase God, you are awesome and you are amazing, and we worship you." So there's mysteries here about the relationship between human responsibility and God's total control over all things. But at the end of the day, the Bible simply asserts that our choices are real and God will hold us accountable for them. So we're not robots. We are created in His image. Choices matter. We're held accountable, still responsible. But if you have chosen Jesus, the Bible tells you that even if you didn't feel it, that God is the primary author of that. He caused you to be born again. See 1 John 5.1. Objection number two. Does this cut the heart out of evangelism? Does God's predestining love cut the heart out of evangelism? Because the objection goes like this. Well, if God's going to save everybody, well, he can just do it. And what do we got to do with it? <laughs> well, there's a lot we could say about that. But let me let me go back and just say this. Does it cut the heart out of evangelism? Absolutely not. It actually sets evangelism ablaze with passion. Why? Because God saves people. God actually does save people. And here's the deal. He doesn't tell us who's ordained for salvation and who's not. We'll never know that. That's God's mind and not ours. What, did he, what does he tell us? What does the Bible say to us? Make disciples. Tell people about Jesus. And here's the deal. When you tell people about Jesus, there are people that are going to respond. Right? Right? Ben and Katie sit right here in the front row. They're great at training people how to share their faith, and they're seeing people come to faith. They don't know who those people are. They have no idea what God's, Ephesians chapter 1, the adoption before the foundation of the world. That's God's knowledge. That's not our knowledge. We have no access to that, nor will we ever. And, And God doesn't say you're responsible for that. He says here's what you're responsible for. Share your faith. And that is the means by which God's sovereign plan is going to come to pass in the world. So you do have a part to play. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of God. So spread the seed like a sower, like a farmer. Cast the seed, just cast the seed far and wide. You can't control that growth. God's in charge of the growth, but you can cast the seed So God is in the business of saving people, of awakening people, of raising the spiritually dead. He's has been doing it and will continue to do it. He promises that. And anyone who is a Christian here today, you're a testimony to that. So this this fans the flame of evangelism. Because if you don't believe that God is sovereign over salvation, in theory, some people, maybe no one ever gets saved. because here's the deal like when when you believe this it also takes the pressure off right you know how many times I've shared my faith and it's gone really bad I mean I'm doing my best you guys like I'm I'm not a gifted evangelist I want to be faithful with it though like most honest like whenever I share the faith for some reason my faith for some reason people just be like that sounds dumb and they walk away I don't know why. And I've got friends, like the Newtons could tell you testimonies. They share their faith. Boom, right there. I-, I want that. I need that. I don't know why that is. So if I didn't have this doctrine of like, hey, buddy, it's not all up to you, then that would be crushing for me. Like, and I would work hard to like, well, maybe I need to like prove myself and I need to work hard and I need to do all this and all these tactics. And then those tactics are great in a secondary tertiary sense. But primarily I'm called to know that God is sovereign and He will save and He does the, the work of causing someone to be born again. And my job is just to be faithful. So it takes the pressure off. It doesn't mean we should be lazy and just be like, well, who cares? Uh, you know, Jesus, he's a good dude. All right, you into that? No? Okay, all right, on to the next. You know, I mean, that's not what we're called to. We should be faithful. But at the end of the day, it's not up to you. Third objection. Does this cut the heart out of prayer for those who are saved? Like if God is going to save whoever he wants, what's the point of asking him to do a work in someone's heart? Like we pray, God, would you overcome their hardness of heart? Like I pray that all the time. Well, he, this again, this is a little deeper waters theologically, but how do you know that God didn't ordain your praying for that person to be the means by which someone gets saved. He ordained that you would pray for that person as the means by which he would glorify himself by saving that person in answer to your prayer. See, God can ordain the means just as much as he ordains the ends. Now that might be hard to understand, maybe a little more simply you don't want to think about it like that, we just simply embrace both truths of what the Bible says. The Bible says, God says, again, like things that you might not totally understand, but we embrace because the Bible asserts it, like he's sovereign over all things, and he calls us to pray, and that pray does matter. He wants us to pray to him, and he does answer prayers. He says um, in, in Matthew 12, I believe, pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he would send Workers, because the fields are white for harvest, meaning there's people that are still waiting to hear the message so that they can believe. Because faith comes by hearing, and y'all go, got to go out, and you got to share it and make disciples. So the Bible just assumes that he we're to pray, and that prayer prayer matters. So it's a mystery as to how and why God answers prayers. Again, the Bible asserts it, doesn't explain it. But we know that he tells us to do it and that he responds to it. So let's do it. Let's do it. Like sometimes it's, it's, it's really dangerous to wait until you understand everything before you obey. Like my kids would have been in grave, grave danger if they had to understand absolutely everything before I expected them to obey right? Like, here's how physics works to my three-year-old. There's a bus and it's really heavy and it's going at a high rate of speed. And if you're in the street, you're going to die because you're small. And this is how gravity works and momentum and weight. And I don't know anything about physics, but I mean, it's (laughs) kind of like that, right? No, I just say, hey, you can't go play in the street. You can't go play in the street. I'm telling you that because I love you. And because I love you, if you do, I'm going to discipline you because I love you. I expect you to obey. You don't understand, but I still expect you to obey. And in some ways, I think that's how God is with us because our, our understanding is always going to hit its head on this really, really firm, concrete ceiling at times. It doesn't mean we shouldn't seek to understand things. That's why we have God's revelation, but it's going to hit a limit. And and this, this topic will, will cause that. If you think about it long enough. So those are the objections. There's many more. Feel free to put them in the, in, in the QA. But I just want to read first John 5 1 again. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. Let me just close with this. If anybody understands this doctrine rightly. What, what should be the major outcome of that in terms of your life? Well, there's a lot. In, in the church I grew up in, um, I was never taught what the Bible teaches like this until I got to college. And I started seeing this, and it's like, well, this is like all over these pages. Like, holy cow, it's everywhere. And unfortunately, a lot of people that believe this this doctrine get a reputation of being arrogant. And I've been guilty of that in the past. But ultimately, what this is about is if you understand that salvation is all of grace, nothing that you did to merit it, what does that bring? It brings humility. Profound humility. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. God just simply said, be born. And I was awakened to see. I was dead at the bottom of the ocean. Ephesians 2 says this. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And God, verse 4, made us alive together with Christ. I was dead on the bottom of the ocean and and God came down took me off the bottom of the ocean, brought me to shore, resuscitated me, and I looked at him and I said, wow, thank you. I want a relationship with you, my Savior. So does that bring arrogance? No, it brings humility. It brings absolute humility. It's all of grace. It's all of God. He gets the glory. We get the joy. And here's the other thing, real quick. Look again at verse 1. This humility has to spill over into our relationships. We understand this doctrine, that humility has to spill into our relationships. Look at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father, look at what it says, loves whoever has been born of him. So if you know you've been born of God, that's going to cause you to love the Father, is what it says there, and everyone else who's a Christian, right? Of course, non-Christians as well, but that's not what this text is about. Like, I'm so weary of relational strife among Christians. I'm so weary of it. I've lived long enough to see a lot of it. But if you know you've been saved by pure grace, nothing for you to take pride in, that has to be the power to crucify the pride in my own heart that almost always is the reason for any conflict. I'm so aware of this grace and mercy that I've been shown, how could I not extend that to others? So this message this morning has the power, according to 1 John 5, 1, to, to revolutionize our relationships as well. So, in summary, the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination, what John calls being born of God, is clearly taught in Scripture. And it brings power to evangelism, it brings power to prayer, and most of all, it humbles us knowing that God is the author of my faith. I don't deserve it or earn it. He gets the glory and we get the joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that those who have trusted in you have been born of you. Lord, we pray that This message of your grace and your mercy would be attractive to those that may not even know it for the first time this morning. And that if they have eyes to see and ears to hear that they desire your cross and your resurrection to save them from their sin, that they could understand how that comes to pass even right now. And again, be humbled with hearts of thanksgiving and worship. God, may we truly uh, stand in awe before what you have revealed in your word. Or we want to repent of having to have it all figured out before we obey. But I pray you would make us childlike in that way where we trust you. Would you help us? In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not going to answer questions this morning. but I'll just kind of uh, wet the whistle a little bit here. Question one, and I'll answer these this week. (laughs) Answer, we'll see how that goes, but uh, I'll speak to these. Are, um, Are feeling your need for God and God electing you two sides of the same coin, or are they separate events? Good question. Second question. Does God predestine sin? <laughs> this is, um, yeah, we'll talk about this. Genesis one says that Adam and Eve were allowed to eat from any tree, but not the tree of um, knowing good and evil. But they disobeyed. I know they are responsible for their sin, but was it God's will for them to commit that sin? Yeah that that is that is the question, um, and that's something that theologians have been thinking about for. 2000 years. So I'll talk about that a little bit in a podcast probably this week. Great questions. Um, thank you guys for being attentive this morning. I know this is, it's hard uh, sometimes to think about these more profound things, but it's in God's Word. We're called to it.